Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody online. Glad you could join us. So I think for most people, school is probably back in session. I think most of our kids are in school. Most of the students are back at college. And so we're all kind of getting back into the normal routine of life outside of summer vacation. And our oldest, he started kindergarten this year. And so this is our first foray into the rhythms of school for the, for the next, I don't know, 18 years or something. And we got another one behind him. But I started thinking about the nature of school this week. And, and it's a really weird thing when you stop and think about it. School plays such a huge role in dictating the rhythms and patterns of our lives for so long. I mean, when you're a kid, your whole life revolves around school. Your social life is at school. Your, your activities and hobbies oftentimes have to do with school. Your schedule, your calendar, it all revolves around school. And when you're a parent, it's pretty much the same thing, just to maybe a different extent, because you're always taking your kids to school and to their extracurriculars and being at their games and waiting for summer vacation. And, and we, there's just a lot about school that dictates our lives. And when something that all-encompassing finally comes to a conclusion, it can be a really weird feeling. Like, what, what are we supposed to do now? I, I kind of had that feeling a few years ago. I graduated from seminary, degree in hand. I thought, all right, we're done. Finally, we did it. And I woke up the next morning, and I just had this really odd sensation. Like, I'm supposed to be doing a paper or something today. Like, there's got to be a book I'm supposed to be reading or, like, some research. Because for the last 20 years, that was the rhythm and routine of my life was do your homework. And there was about a good two-month time span where I just lived in this perpetual state of extended nervousness. Like, I forgot to do something really important. It was a weird adjustment. And it was a time when I just, I found myself asking this question, what, what's next? What am I supposed to do now? And that's a question that all of us ask at some point, probably multiple points in our lives. Those seasons where we're just unsure what to do. Maybe, maybe the first time you asked that question was when you got out of school and you entered the, the adult world and whether you went to college, you entered the service or you went to work, maybe your question was, okay, what, what's next? What do I do here? Or maybe you asked that question after your children left school and moved out and you became empty nesters and so much of your time and energy went into raising these kids and now they're gone and you're like, now what do I do? The answer is have some fun. That's the answer to that question. But no, but like maybe that was when you wrestled with it. Or maybe you entered midlife and you started to ask that question. I, I had a friend who was kind of on the earlier end of midlife and his kids were all born, they weren't going to have any more kids, and they'd paid off their debt, and they were funding their retirement, and, and their careers were stable and advancing. And like All of the, the big to-dos that you're supposed to check off the list as you enter that phase of life were done. And he was really confused, like, oh, what, what do I do now? Like, I've done what I'm supposed to do, now what? Or, or maybe you retired, and you started asking that question. Outside of school, you know, our career is where we put the most of our time and our energy and our efforts, and when that comes to a close, it's really common for people to start to ask the question of, okay, now what, and feel a little lost. We ask this question at, at different times for different reasons and in a lot of different ways, but it all revolves around this idea of purpose. Why am I here? That's one of the big questions that we as people, we, we wrestle with throughout our existence. And it's one of the big questions that actually gets addressed when we look at God's plan in the beginning. 
This is part three of a series called The Plan. We've been looking at the book of Genesis at some of the first few stories in Scripture because they lay a foundation to help us understand our lives in the world around us in a, in a biblically sound way, a, a worldview, if you will. And one of the questions that this opening story in Genesis addresses is our question of purpose and, and why am I here? So if you would, open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along on the screens to the side, or you can download the FCC Mammoth app to your mobile device and tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner. And there's a lot of useful tools for engaging with the morning and getting the most out of it, but right now you want to tap the sermon notes button, and you'll find our passage with our outlines and stuff ready to utilize. So, this question, why am I here? What's my purpose? This is not a new question, very, very old question. We've been asking it since the beginning of time, and thankfully, God answers our questions of purpose in the beginning as well. In the book of Genesis chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Both male and female, he, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God created mankind in His image with the purpose of ruling over creation. And it gets a little more explicit in what that looks like, filling it, subduing it, ruling over the fish and the birds and the living creatures on the ground. That's a really big purpose statement that we want to unpack this morning and see how that applies to our lives. So we'll start with this idea of being made in God's image. We talked about this a little bit last week, if you were with us. If not, a brief recap. This idea of, of the image of God, it was a very familiar concept in this part of the ancient world. Whether you were in Egypt, or you in Babylon, or you in Assyria, or Asher, or wherever, all of these nations kind of had the same understanding. That the image of God was a concept applied to one single individual. It would be the king of whatever nation we're talking about. And that king represented this deity that they worshipped, whether you're talking about Marduk or, or Baal or Asherah or whoever, whatever god they worshipped in that land, the king represented him. It was his image bearer. And as such, there was a great dignity and significance attached to the king. He had a, an importance that was greater than every living person and every living creature on the face of the earth. But along with this also came a very special responsibility. He was supposed to represent and reflect that deity in the way that he ruled over the nation. So the way that he conquered and expanded borders, the way that he brought prosperity, the way that he administered justice, the grandeur with which he conducted himself, all of this was supposed to reflect the greatness of whatever deity they worshipped and to represent him for the people to see. That was his job, his role as the image of the God. You might think of it in terms of the way that kids sometimes imitate their parents, often with humorous outcomes. Uh, this is a picture of me and my oldest boy, Levi. He's five. A tree fell in our backyard, uh, and so we grabbed the chainsaw, and I was hacking it up, and he wanted to help, and he decided he wanted to be just like Dad. So he had to get his work gloves, just like Dad. You can kind of see there. 
Uh, and he wanted to carry logs and limbs, just like Dad, which was not very helpful because it meant I had to cut up logs that were small enough for him to carry, which just takes more time. But the funny part was the stuff that he said to himself as he was carrying this little handful of logs. He would kind of walk through the yard and say, oh, yeah, I'm so strong. I'm a working man. Hey, Mom, I'm a working man. Like, and it was really cute. But then I started to think, he's imitating me. So does this mean I say stupid stuff like that while I'm working? <laughs> Kids imitate their parents. Thankfully, it's not always a one-to-one -one reflection, I think. And that's sort of the idea with this image of God concept. The king represented the God. It wasn't a one-to-one, -one, but it was a close enough resemblance you could tell who he was trying to be like. So that's the ancient concept. Let's take that and put it in this biblical context that we just read, all right? So God makes mankind in his image, all of them. Everybody that ever would walk the earth, everybody that will, that ha all of us, you, you, me, everybody in here, all of mankind has been made in his image. That means that everybody carries this special significance, Every human being on the face of the earth has this dignity about them that is greater than the living creatures upon the face of the earth. It's a really special thing. And there's a lot of implications to this about the way that we treat one another and the way that we take care of one another and love one another and so on. There's a lot of implications for things like justice. In fact, we had a sermon series several months back on the book of Amos, and really it all revolves around this idea that everybody matters because everybody's made in the image of God. I would encourage you, if you missed it, go back and listen to it. What I want to focus on today, though, is the other part of the equation. Because we're all made in the image of God, we all have this same shared responsibility to reflect and represent God in this world. Through the way that we live, through the way that we behave, through the way that we conduct ourselves, both with our efforts and our attitudes, our job is to worship God and bring Him glory by representing Him and ruling over creation. Now, some of you may be hearing that and going, this is way too much. I'm out. I don't like responsibility. I don't even like having to show up for my 9 to 5, let alone ruling over creation on behest of God. That sounds huge, and it is. But the reality is we all have this ability He's blessed us with it, and we all have this same purpose. It just plays out a couple of different ways. Some of us, maybe intellectually, we're grasping this, and we're saying, okay, I get that, but our imagination sometimes struggles to see how it plays out in the context of our lives. Like maybe if we were super influential people, if we were like politicians or, you know, like professional athletes or like the CEO of a major corporation, maybe then we could see like ruling over creation and influencing people and the world in big ways. Like those people, they do that kind of thing. But me, I live a pretty mundane life. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I just mean that, that you and I, we, we live normal lives. I mean, we live in a small town in western Illinois. A lot of us punch a clock for a living. You know, we, we, we come home and we, we make spaghetti because it's cheap and easy and it fills us up and we don't have the energy to make a big fancy meal. Like, we have normal lives. So how are we supposed to rule over creation even though our, our lives are so average and normal? That's where this holy imagination comes into play a little bit. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time together doing, just flexing that imagination a bit and imagining the various ways that you and I 
have the opportunity to represent God and rule over this world. Sometimes we, we think that because our lives are normal, we don't have this opportunity, but the reality is that life is filled with opportunities to represent God in His creation. I mean, just chock full. And maybe we can't rule over all of creation, or maybe even have huge influence in this world, but every single one of us has been given a little slice of God's creation in which to rule over and represent Him faithfully. And we get a a little better picture of these arenas whenever we take a closer look at the book of Genesis. There's two ways that we tend to stumble when it comes to imagining this purpose in our lives. The first one is the arena or the place where we live it out. But Genesis 1.28 kind of clarifies. It starts off with a few directives and charges. It says, increase in number, multiply, fill the earth, right? In other words, make more people. And it would be really easy to look at something like that from a purely, like, pragmatic way, purely fleshly way. After all, this is the beginning. We need more people in the world. Obviously, God wants them to procreate and make more people. That's the call. But we need to remember that the image of God concept is not just about the action or the effort. It's also about the attitude and the character. So which better reflects the character of God? Just simply having sex and birthing babies, advancing the species, or raising those babies as people and developing them and discipling them to be capable adults who will themselves go and represent Him in the world? We all should be saying option two, right? Thank you. Yeah, because if we got, if we got to back up and clarify this, we scrap this sermon. We got to go back to ABCs. Yeah, God would call us to like raise people, not just to simply make more of them, but to make more good people. In other words, have a family. That's one of the, the arenas that all of us share in where we have this opportunity to reflect and represent God. That's the little slice of creation that He's given us. Sometimes we forget that people are part of God's creation as well. It's not just animals and plants and stars and stuff. People, day six of the story that we read, people are part of His creation. And little people, children, people in our family, they need cared for. And they need developed. And they need provided for. And they need protected. They need somebody to to represent God to them and stand in that place and to show them His kindness and His mercy and His compassion and His love and His concern. The family is such an important arena, and I would even argue maybe the most important arena, where we represent God faithfully and rule over that little slice of creation. And it may seem mundane, it may seem ordinary, because everybody's got some form of family. How, how is this special? How is this going to make a huge impact in the world? I love to share a story from church history, and I share it for various reasons. It's about a woman uh, who lived in the fourth century named Monica, and she lived in North Africa. Uh, Monica was a believer. She married a man. He was not a believer. Uh, he was an okay guy. He was a pretty upstanding guy. He, he had this tendency to criticize her for her generosity and her piety, but she had a lot of qualities that he very much respected. Uh, Monica's mother-in-law lived with them. She's not a very pleasant woman, uh, oftentimes criticized Monica. Uh, you can imagine that wasn't the best dynamic. And so this is where she lived for the vast majority of her adult life in this kind of environment, but she didn't let it get to her. She made it a point to represent her God well in that context, in that little arena. And through her actions and her kindness and her service, her humility and her attitude, 
she eventually won over both her husband and her mother-in-law. Both of them accepted the Lord. They became believers. Now, Monica had three children, the oldest of which was quite bright, is a pretty intelligent guy, but he was one of those people that was so smart that he started to buy into really dumb things. You ever met somebody like that? Like, they, they think about things so deeply that even stupid stuff starts to make a lot of sense. That's sort of who this kid was. And he bought into this philosophy called Manichaeism. Long story short, it made for some pretty loose moral living, and it invited some potential destruction into his life. So Monica just prayed for her son. She continued to speak with him, to love on him, to minister to him, to represent God to him, to reflect his kindness and generosity. And lo and behold, through a long and complicated story we don't have time for, this son found the Lord, he became a believer, he was baptized, and having seen her whole family come to faith, Monica closed her eyes and died a few short days later. Her whole life, she spent her time representing God and reflecting Him to the people that she loved in this arena. Don't ever underestimate the significance of this place, this family, this role that He's called you to. That oldest son, by the way, he, uh, his name was Augustine. He, you probably know him as St. Augustine of Hippo. He was one of the most influential theologians of Western Christianity, and a lot of us in here today, maybe we don't recognize it, we are believers because of His work. He did so much to clarify the faith and make it make sense for us. So here's this woman who had this mundane, ordinary, average life, but has huge, huge impact in the world simply because she understood her purpose was to represent God in this context. The family is so important. And by the way, don't assume that just because you may not have children that this excludes you, because a family is more than just little people. When we read Genesis, you got to remember, it's written to the context of all humanity, like everybody. This is a very big picture view of things. And so, yes, children are in view, but a family is more than just parents and children. Maybe you have parents alive. Maybe you have a spouse that's living with you. Maybe you have siblings. Whoever you call family, that's your little slice of creation that God has entrusted you with. And the purpose of your life, among other things, but one of the purposes is to represent God and to reflect who He is to those people that you too might make an impact in their lives and bring Him glory. That's a pretty profound purpose. But that's just part of it. If we keep reading Genesis 128, we see that we're called to, to make more people, to multiply, but then He goes on, He says, subdue creation rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves upon the face of the earth. Subdue creation. If, if you're not familiar, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and if we were to go to a Hebrew word study on that one word, subdue, what we would discover is that it is not a polite word. It's not a nice word at all, actually. It's a very forceful word. In fact, in other contexts, that word is used to describe the way that one person would force themselves on another person. It's a word that suggests a, a asserting dominance or inflicting your will upon creation. Through force of strength, you are bending it and making it behave. That's the idea here of subdue. subdue. Did I say idea? I just caught that. I'm sorry. I'm from southern Illinois. So that's the idea here is subduing creation, making it behave through your work. Your effort. 
That's one of the arenas that God has entrusted us with, is our work, our occupation. And some occupations, it's easier to see how this connects, ruling over creation. You take like agriculture, for instance. All right, you are literally bending creation to your will. You're disking up dirt and you're planting seeds and you're herding cattle and you're doing all this stuff with nature. That's easy to see. You're making the world behave. But it's a little more difficult to see and requires a little more holy imagination when we work in a different kind of field. Maybe we work in like construction or manufacturing or, I don't know, maybe we process hogs, right? That's a pretty big occupation in this town. How do jobs like that reflect this purpose? How do we rule over creation and represent God through those? Well, there's an important question I think we need to ask, and it's one that we can ask of any job, by the way, not just jobs of this, this sphere. What is being accomplished here? What is my job accomplishing? You take Smithfield, for instance. You're processing hogs. You might say, well, how does this reflect God and rule over creation? I'm a preacher. I do some things well but that isn't one of them, right? Like, I, I meet with people, I, I organize things, I do budgets, I preach sermons. That's, what, that's my sphere. That's what I do. And it doesn't leave me a whole lot of time to create an entirely self-sufficient food supply. I just don't, I don't have the time. I don't have the ability. I don't have the, the capability or the knowledge of how to do that. If I tried to do that, y'all think I'm skinny now, you just wait. I'm probably going to wither away. I just, I can't do it. And that's why I need people like those that work at Smithfield, because they take part of creation and they make it beneficial and useful to people like me, something that's safe for my family to eat. Even if I could go buy a whole hog, I wouldn't know what to do with it, nor would I have a place to put it. Like, I need some ribs, but I don't need all the ribs because they're just going to spoil and go bad. And so I'm glad that they make just usable portions of ribs. I need some chops, but I don't need all the chops, right? I don't have a place. I need some bacon, but I would take all the bacon if they were offered. That's the one exception, right? But you get what I'm saying. They, they take part of God's creation, and they make it beneficial and useful for the rest of us. That's an important task. You might think of something like construction. You, you take materials from God's creation, whether you wood, steel, rock, whatever, and you bend it through your work into something useful, and beneficial. Or you take repair work. You're taking something broken, and through effort, you're making it useful and beneficial. When we look at the creation story, days one through six, God, He takes something that is formless and void, something that is chaotic, and bends it to His will into something that has form and is filled, something that he calls good at the end of each day. Good is not just a qualitative statement about its character. God has made this something useful, beneficial, purposeful, ordered, pleasing. That's the nature of God's creative work. And through our occupation, he invites us to join him and to participate in continuing that creative work of taking what is not as useful and making it something beneficial and good for His people to enjoy. You see, your job has a lot of significance and importance. But maybe you're saying, like, I don't work in agriculture, I don't work in manufacturing or, or, or you know, hogs and stuff. I, I do banking or I work in education or I work in healthcare or retail or food service or wherever. If that's the case, you're a lot like me. You are in the people business. And once again, I would remind you, people are part of God's creation. 
Our job is to bring something good and beneficial into their lives. Whether it's treating an illness, or filling their minds with knowledge, or helping them find a a tool or, or find a product that is going to enrich their life in some way. We all have this opportunity to represent God in bringing something good and beneficial into the lives of other people, representing Him in that way. You see, the occupation is an incredible arena where we all have this opportunity to fulfill this purpose, to reflect Him and to share in this ruling over creation, this little slice of the world that He's entrusted to you. Now, some of you may be saying, he ran out of stuff to preach on and he's just making stuff up now because there's no way my job is that important. But I would encourage you to consider Jesus for just a moment. You know, Jesus is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He's the the divine Son of God. He's the Savior of mankind. He's a really big deal. And when we think of Jesus, a lot of times, rightfully, we think of His teachings, or we think of His miracles, or hopefully we think of how He laid His life down on the cross that our sins may be forgiven And we think of His resurrection from the grave that is our hope and our promise of victory when all this is said and done. If you don't think of that, you come see me after church. i got a lot of good news to share with you about Jesus. And we probably think about all of these things when we hear that name. But I would remind you, all of that happened in the last three years of Jesus' life. That meant for 30 whole years, Jesus was doing something entirely different. So what was He doing? Well, if we dig into the New Testament and we start to observe the little bit we know about Jesus' life, we discover He lived in a small town on the east side of Israel called Nazareth. We learn that Jesus worked as a carpenter. Pretty average, mundane job. We don't read anything about Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, which leads a lot of scholars to believe he died sometime in Jesus' life, and as the oldest son in the family, he probably lived at home and took care of his mom. The Son of God! The divine second person of the Trinity, the Savior of mankind, the big deal, for 30 years lived a pretty average and mundane life. But when we read about that life, we get this little one-sentence summary of it in the book of Luke chapter 2. Here's what we find. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Something about that mundane average life was pleasing to God. Not only did God pay attention to it and take notice of it, but He found favorable something favorable in it. And what that says to me is that our lives may be very average, may be very normal, may be mundane, but God still cares about them. And in fact, we are tasked with living in such a way that it, it brings pleasure to Him and that He finds them favorable. No matter what your family consists of, whether it be you and a thousand kids or just you and your spouse or you and your parents live on the other side, whatever, no matter what you do for a living or what your occupation is, our lives are chock full of opportunities to represent God to this world, to reflect His character and His demeanor and to join with Him in ruling over this creation that He's entrusted us with, that little sliver We all have an arena to live out this purpose. So that's one area we sometimes struggle to to find the significance of this. The other place that we oftentimes stumble in, in applying this is in the attitude. 
the kind of attitude that is necessary to reflect God and to be His image bearer. Because we're, when it comes to imaging God or reflecting Him, the effort is important, but the attitude matters just as much. I mean, we have to faithfully represent who He is, because we can do all the right things in the wrong ways, right? Take, for example, here's a scenario. Whenever I grill at home, you know, I'll go out, I'll get the, the grill heated up, and let's say I tell my oldest son, Levi, he's five, I say, Levi, go inside and tell mom I'm ready for the meat now. He could go inside and say, hey, mom, dad's ready for the meat now, which is a faithful representation of what I asked him to do, or he could say, hey, mom, dad's ready for the meat now, which is very different from what I asked him to do and is probably going to get me in trouble because I didn't put near as much sass or attitude in that. You can do the right stuff in the wrong ways. And that's true of us in imaging God as well. We, we might be wanting to lead our families and protect our families and provide for our families and guide them in upright ways. But if we're doing so with a domineering spirit or with a tight-fisted inflexibility, that doesn't really represent who God is and what He's like. In fact, we're warned against that very attitude in the book of Colossians. Fathers, do not embitter your children. We can, we can go to work and we can try to bend creation to our will and exert our strength over it and make it beneficial and good, but if I'm doing so with a callousness towards creation, with a cruelty towards it, or a disregard for its state, I'm not really honoring who God is. You read Genesis chapter 1, we read a God who takes disorder and makes it orderful or ordered and beautiful and, and good, not a God that takes it and delights in chaos or destruction or the mistreatment of creation. I, I, can, I can work with people. I can try to bring benefit into their lives, but if I'm doing so out of self-centered greed or I'm filling their lives with excess that they don't really need just because it benefits my bottom line, that's not really the character of God. We don't have a self-serving God who takes and takes. We have a God who gives to the point of sacrificing His only Son for our benefit. You see, we can do all the right things, but we can do them in a wrong way that does not represent or reflect who our God is. That's why I say the effort matters, but the attitude matters just as much if we really want to be representatives of who He is. So the question we often wrestle with is, how do I know what God is like? How do I know what kind of a heart He would have and my job, or in my family, or so on. And again, I would point us to Jesus. We read in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 15, that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the, capital T-H-E, image of God. And you might be saying, well, I thought we were all made in God's image, so, like, why is that a big deal? Four verses later, we also read, in verse 19, for God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. That is something you and I cannot claim. All of God's fullness, all of His character, all of His compassion, all of His love and His grace and His mercy, all of His uprightness and justice, all of who God is was found in the person of Jesus. We said earlier, kids sometimes reflect their parents and it's not always a perfect one-to-one. This is the exception, because Jesus is the perfect one-to-one -one representation of who God is and what He is like. So if you want to know the character of God and the kind of heart that He beats with, just look at the life of Jesus and the way that He interacts 
with the marginalized and with the poor, the way that he stands up for what is right and what is true, even if it's costly, for the way that he, he operates and, motive, and, and moves in his life with compassion and grace and with sacrifice and selflessness. That's what God is like. And that's the character with which we must, re- we must represent him in this world. To be his image bearers is to follow the image himself, Jesus. That is one of countless reasons why it is so crucial to have an ongoing relationship with Jesus. Because in so many ways, without him, the whole plan falls apart. The plan of purpose, the plan of knowing who God is, the plan of finding salvation and being with God for eternity, it all hinges on Jesus, this whole plan. And it's a really, really good plan. When it comes to us specifically, it's a plan that never stops having significance, no matter what phase of life we may be in, from cradle to grave. Maybe we're coming out of school. Maybe our kids are coming out of school. Maybe we're in midlife. Maybe we're retiring. It doesn't really matter the context. The purpose that God gives us remains constant. Our job is to bring Him glory and worship by ruling over the little slice of this world He's entrusted to us in a way that represents Him faithfully. That's the plan. And it's important to keep that plan in the back of our minds, particularly as we make our own plans. Because we have one of two tendencies a lot of times. Sometimes we just completely disregard God's plan, and we say, I'm going to do this because it looks good, and it looks appealing, and it looks like it's going to end well. That's folly. But we also have this tendency at times to agonize over God's plan, as if our life is some sort of movie script that He's written out, and it's our job to crack the secret code and figure out what we're supposed to do next. And if we deviate from the script, oh man, we're never going to be happy, or we're going to disappoint God or something, that's not really the impression that we get at all. Rather, when we find ourselves in Genesis 1, what we see is a God who blesses us with an insane amount of freedom to live our lives and to make our plans and to pursue our careers and to live an adventure. All he asks is that as we do these things, we represent him well, bring him glory through our actions, our efforts, and our attitudes. Outside of that, we're blessed with life to live. So here's your homework. Your next step. It's the theme of school. Remember, I feel like I should give you some homework. So here's the homework. Tomorrow morning, I want you to wake up just like you always do. First off, wake up. That's a good thing. Please do that. Wake up. Eat some breakfast. If you got kids, get them ready. Drop them off at school. Go to work. Do a really good job. Come home. Kiss your spouse. Eat some dinner. Tuck your kids in at night. Have some fun. Watch a TV show. Read a book. Whatever you do for fun. Make it productive. Go to bed and get a great night's sleep and then wake up and do the same thing again the next day. And as you do all of this, as you live your life, whether it be exciting and grand, whether it be normal, average, and mundane, whatever you do in your life as you live, realize that every moment is an opportunity to worship God through your efforts, through your actions, through the attitude with which you conduct yourself throughout the day. I want you to live your life but do it in a way that reflects Him, because that's the plan. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You for this life. It's filled with all kinds of ups and downs. It's filled with big moments, with mundane moments. And we thank You for all of it, because in each and every moment we have the opportunity
to find fulfillment in you, to bring you glory in the way that we love, in the way we forgive, in the way that we are charitable, in the way that we work and labor and what we produce. May we find satisfaction in our occupation. May we find perpetual significance in our family. And matter, no matter what we may be doing or where we may go or who we meet along the way, Father, may we represent you well. And when people look at us in our lives, may they glorify your name and praise Jesus because his image is so evident within us. Let us find peace in you and satisfaction in you and let, let you find glory and praise in us that our lives would find favor with you just like our Lord. That you be pleased in the way we reflect you here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.